Support has been provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This one, another one in our series on the AUA Expert uh, Exchange podcasts, uh, discussions about managing GU cancer. And today's topic specifically is on chemoablation of upper tract urothelial carcinoma. Uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Dr. Jay Raman. Dr. Raman is professor and chief of urology at Penn State Health in Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And Dr. Raman will also be filling the role of uh, chair of the Office of Education uh, when I complete my term. Uh, so it is a great pleasure to have him. And you, can you all can familiarize uh, yourselves with his voice because you'll be hearing a lot more of it uh, in the years to come. Uh, Jay, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you know, Vic, thank you uh, very much. And uh, as I've said before, and I'll say again, uh, big, uh, big shoes to follow, but uh, I'm certainly I'm looking forward to it and uh, uh, happy to be part of this program again this year and be able to do these podcasts with you. Oh, thanks, Jay. I just want to go over our four learning objectives uh, before we get into the, the meat of our discussion. Uh, the first is to discuss the concept of risk stratification for evaluating upper tract urothelial carcinoma. The second is to recognize the importance of kidney preservation when feasible for the management of upper tract urothelial carcinoma. The third is to understand some limitations of current endoscopic approaches for managing upper tract urothelial carcinoma. And finally, the fourth to identify new technologies for the treatment of upper tract urothelial carcinoma, the current data on treatment effectiveness, and analyze the risks and benefits of these therapies. Um, so Jay, why don't we start off with, uh, with just a discussion about uh, upper tract urothelial carcinoma and risk stratification. Perfect. So I think one of the things that's that's interesting about upper tract disease is that if you look at data from the U.S. over the last 30 years, uh, the rates of upper tract disease have indeed been increasing. And um, uh, the majority of this increase is really in patients who have um, in situ disease or localized disease. So we, we have this stage migration to more cases but less advanced to disease pathology. And as a consequence of that, um, the old mantra of we need to do radical surgery, we need to remove the kidney and the ureter, um, we've started to uh, take a step back and say, maybe there's a more nuanced approach to this and maybe we need to look at um, patients and their cancers and look at uh, what risk group they're in. Is this a low risk 
tumor? Is this a high-risk tumor? And, and manage these differently based upon risk. So when we look at treating upper tract carcinomas and, and realize we're looking at a disease process that's relatively uncommon. I mean, if you look at all of urothelial cancer, upper tract carcinomas are probably about five to 7% of these. Um, the way I think about it is, um, is this a patient who has upper tract carcinoma and has an imperative issue or is this an elective issue? And, and what I mean by that difference is imperative is somebody in whom um, kidney sparing or kidney preservation is critical. Maybe they only have a single kidney. Maybe they have kidney disease. Maybe they have tumors on both sides, or maybe they're just such a sick patient that you have to preserve the kidney. Or is this an elective indication? They have a tumor in the urothelium of the upper tract, and therefore, um, ideally, if it's safe to do it, we'd like to preserve that kidney unit. And that's really what I think about in elective. And, and I'd sort of, you know, sort of finish this, this thought process by saying, when we look at low and high risk, um, there's sort of different factors that go into it. Um, there's clinical factors, there's imaging factors like radiographic factors, there's things that we put together from ureteroscopy when we diagnose these tumors, and then there's certainly pathology factors. And, and so if you look at you know, who's a low risk candidate or who's a low risk tumor, um, it's certainly somebody who's compliant somebody who is not actively smoking or doesn't have active exposures, um, imaging that shows that there's no evidence of invasion, um, smaller tumors, I mean, those that are one, one and a half centimeters, um, and those that are low grade. So, you know, negative cytology and low grade. And, and I think that this, in, this idea of looking at risk and looking at these low risk patients, these are perhaps those who are ideal for thinking about kidney preserving strategies versus removal of the entire kidney unit. You know, we have, uh, we've certainly learned a lot about the benefits of preserving kidney function from our kidney cancer data, uh, where partial nephrectomy has now become the standard of care when, uh, it used to be radical nephrectomy not so long ago. Um, obviously, these same principles are going to hold true when we're dealing with uh, upper tract urothelial carcinoma. So let's talk a little bit about some of the benefits uh, uh, and the role of kidney preservation in this, uh, in this disease. Yeah, I, I think uh, you, you really highlighted some of the key thought processes and the thought points here. And, and I would go almost even one step further, which is um, if you look at the population that has kidney cancer, um, they are in general a far more healthy population than those patients who develop or who need treatment for upper tract carcinomas. You know, the average age for upper tract carcinoma is over 70. Many of them uh, have significant exposures, namely tobacco exposure. I mean, that's essentially one of the big reasons why they develop these tumors. And so they're elderly, they're comorbid, and they really are at risk for significant medical issues 
related to the surgery and then the aftermath of surgery. And, you know, we, we looked at this, um, you know, data is always humbling, especially when you look at your own data. But about three or four years ago, um, I was part of a group that looked at complications of nephroureterectomy. So, you know, what is the complication rate of removing the kidney and the ureter in this patient population? And, and the results were somewhat humbling in, in that when we looked at this patient population, um, about 38%, so over one in three had a complication after nephroureterectomy, and 10% of these patients had a major complication, and 1% of patients died within 90 days of their operation. And so um, it does give us a little bit of a pause to realize that when you compare this even to the kidney cancer population, the stakes are high. And, and even with the best surgeons and the best care pathways and with minimally invasive surgery, unfortunately, some of these patients due to their disease and due to their comorbidities just simply won't do well. And I think that then the second part of it ties into a lot of what you highlighted with kidney cancer, which is we know very well that removal of the kidney um, can result in patients having worsening chronic kidney disease. Um, several uh, studies have shown actually quite clearly that um, baseline chronic kidney disease, even before surgery, is more pronounced in these patients than those that we've looked at for kidney cancer, again, highlighting that these are a comorbid group. And we know that after surgery, um, their kidney function declines, and, and these are often associated with cardiovascular side effects, um, and, and chronic kidney disease itself is related to uh, mortality, all-cause mortality. And so there is really this big thrust about uh, there is significant side effects from removing the kidney. And so um, the, the related point is that we've also learned over time that kidney preservation, trying to preserve the kidney, uh, doesn't compromise outcomes. So if you try to do a a kidney preserving approach, whether it's chemoablation or endoscopic management, and it fails, patient has disease that comes back, um, and then you need to go and do surgery on them, you haven't necessarily at all compromised their outcomes if they're on a good surveillance regimen. And, and the biggest consideration when we think about kidney preservation is the reality that these patients can have disease that comes back, it can recur. And in some cases, it may progress, and, and therefore, uh, they may require repeat therapy, and they may require more involved therapy. So, <clears throat> so back in the day when I trained, kidney preservation meant uh, segmental ureterectomy or distal ureterectomy. We didn't have the, uh, the kinds of endoscopic management that we've had in the last, uh, in the last uh, several decades. And... Um, whether that be percutaneous, whether that be uh, ureteroscopic, certainly we've come a long way, but why don't we talk about some of the limitations of this? Because we certainly know that not all upper tract tumors can be effectively managed by endoscopic means, even if they might appear to be amenable based on um, low grade features, et cetera. Yeah, I, you really hit on some uh, some key points here, which is um, as as surgeons, we have become um, across the board much more facile 
with endoscopic treatment of diseases. Um, and that's in part due to greater familiarity with ureteroscopy, um, with percutaneous renal surgery. Um, we have better tools, we have better optics, we have better mechanisms of biopsying these lesions. We have better um, and more refined lasers. Our laser therapy has evolved over time so that we can treat these theoretically with less associated tissue damage. And, and so we have a lot of things that over time have worked in our favor such that we've evolved from, as you alluded to, the kidney preservation mantra historically being segmental resection and only segmental ureterectomy. But the corollary to that is um, that uh, endoscopic management is, is far from perfect. And, and there's several elements of it that make it far from perfect. Um, the first is that um, unlike bladder cancer, you know, bladder cancer is nice um, from a staging perspective in that imaging is very good. We have excellent tools to use in the bladder. We can resect very substantially. We can look for the presence of muscle invasion or not. We can get large volumes of tumor to look at high-grade versus low-grade elements. And with endoscopy and even percutaneous approaches, our ability to sample both from a skill set of the surgeon, but also from the tools, although they're better, they are more limited. And so we, there is this potential where um, we don't quite have all the robust instruments to debulk a tumor as much as we would like, to sample a tumor as much as we would like. Um, the related part of that, and there's sort of two related components, is that um, upper tract disease is multifocal. And, and the reality is when we are doing endoscopic treatments, we are only treating the disease that we see, but the reality is there may be other disease that we can't see. And, and secondly, when we manage endoscopically upper tract tumors, we are uh, risking, and the data shows this, that we're risking uh, potentially seeding other areas within the upper urinary tract and, and seeding the bladder. And there's some very nice data that shows that bladder cancer uh, is more common at a higher rate after patients have had ureteroscopy for upper tract disease. And, and there's this concept of, you know, this possible seeding phenomenon that's occurring. So if you look at bladder cancer, the, the, a lot of those variables are similar, right? This concept of seeding, this concept of the fact that there's multifocality that you might not see all the areas where there's microscopic disease, but we've gotten very good at giving patients adjuvant therapies in the bladder. You know, the bladder is a great reservoir. It's a, it's a sphere. It can be filled. Patients can retain drug in the bladder. Um, the drugs that we have, whether it's for low-grade cancer uh, or high-grade cancer, are very effective. And so there's great data, and this is why it's in the guidelines. There are adjuvant therapies um, for certain types of bladder cancer or certain risk strata are very useful. Um, we have a much harder time with upper tract. Um, we're looking at, you know, fighting against gravity. You know, urine drains from the upper tract down to the bladder. So if you put drug into the upper tract, how do you keep it in the upper tract? How do you keep it in the particular calyx? 
upper, middle, lower. How do you deliver it there? Um, and so although we've looked at giving drug to augment our, our delivery of endoscopic and percutaneous approaches, uh, the data is clear that it's, it's variable, meaning, and, and the reason it's not permeated into any significant guidelines is there are significant challenges in administering drug. And so I'd sort of, you know, finish this thought process by saying that we have to recognize that limitations of endoscopic and percutaneous management is these patients um, have a, a very high likelihood, you know, 50, 60% likelihood of recurrence within that ipsilateral upper tract, even with the best strategies that we use right now. <clears throat> Jay, up until recently, how commonly would you use um, upper tract adjuvant therapy, such as BCG, traditional mitomycin, or other chemo, uh, chemoablative, chemotherapeutic agents in the upper tract? Is it, you know, was it really reserved for the patient who, you know, was in that, I must preserve this renal unit category? Yeah, it really fell more into that group. So, I mean, I, I think if you look at, um, you know, upper tract pathology, uh, probably the one consistent time when, you know, I would use BCG in the upper tract in my practice is patients who had um, evidence of carcinoma in situ. So multifocal uh, evidence of CIS in the upper tract where um, you know that the disease that you see is not the entire volume of disease that they have. And I do think in those situations, BCG has been shown to have some value for CIS in the upper tract. Um, admittedly, beyond those scenarios, just the elective use of whether it's mitomycin or BCG or pick any of the other drugs that are available, uh, much more limited um, and really reserved more to your point of these more absolute indications, right? Patients who you're trying to give them any advantage possible uh, due to comorbidities, renal function, or any one of those factors. But really, um, because the data is not great, I at least myself have not used adjuvant therapies routinely in the upper tract in my practice. All right, well, now that there are, are some newer agents, um, maybe that opens up a, a new realm for us. And uh, I wanted you to discuss the concept of chemoablation, actually, you know, using an agent to destroy or, uh, you know, treat tumor burden that's left behind as opposed to trying to control CIS or trying to reduce the risk of recurrence in the future. Yeah, so, so this concept of ablation, um, you, you know, if you look at our, our urologic domains, especially cancer domains, this concept of ablation um, has increasingly, I think, permeated into how we think about disease processes. So, you know, I, I would give you before I talk about upper tract, you know, a few, few analogies. Um, if we think about kidney tumors, so tumors in the renal cortex, um, thermal ablation, essentially putting a device into a, a kidney tumor and heating it or cooling it to cause in situ tissue destruction, uh, that's been shown now for 
10, 12, 15 years to be a very viable alternative in a certain patient cohort. But we're certainly seeing the, the concept of ablation being used much more readily for patients with certain types of prostate cancer, whether it's historically cryoablation, now HIFU. So this concept of tissue ablation um, is not new. It's, it's been there. What's new is it's new in the realm of urothelial cancer. So the whole concept of ablation is um, we're not removing the tissue. Um, we are relying on whether it's drug, that would be chemoablation, or any other type of mechanism, um, whether that be some type of energy or light, but basically in situ tumor eradication. And so what's, what's sort of attractive, and what's attractive about this is we talked a lot about some of the challenges of endoscopic and percutaneous management. And, and I would be the first to tell you as somebody that does a lot of this, um, it requires a certain skill set to be facile with endoscopy, to do all the things we talked about, biopsying, lasering, debulking. Um, and it also involves a certain risk tolerance for um, these patients. And, and the concept of chemoablation is theoretically to be able to allow us as a general population treat these tumors perhaps more effectively because we are relying on uh, drug or technology to aid us in this process. So um, what's historically been the challenge of chemoablation? So if you said, well, why, why is chemoablation now coming into light with urothelial cancer? Uh, it goes back to the point I was talking about, which is how do we get drug to stay somewhere? So this concept of ablation isn't really effective in the upper tract if we put some drug up into there and 10 minutes later, it is being excreted from the upper tract. So we're not getting any sort of tissue concentration that can theoretically cause a tumor to uh, tumor cells to regress or tumor cells to die off. And um, you know we were fortunate to uh, be uh, one of the centers that participated in this um, really you know, novel um, uh, prospective therapy um, uh, with a, 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 an agent called UGN-101 or Gelmito. And, and this is one such agent that kind of goes into this concept of chemoablation. And, and what I would say for this particular uh, treatment is that that is a known drug, mitomycin, which is um, complexed to uh, a gel agent. So it's kind of the opposite of jello, for example, right? Jello is uh, at room temperature, it's liquid, and at colder temperatures, it turns into a gelatinous mix. And this is the opposite concept where the, the drug is aqueous or liquid at cold temperatures and gelatinous at room temperature. But what this particular drug compound, and, and admittedly, there are others that are uh, certainly going to be available down the line, but this concept allows you to put drug into the upper tract and the gelatinous nature of it allows you to increase your tissue concentration, thereby allowing you to ablate these tumors. And I think we're now coming into this realm where um, similar thought processes like this and similar um, uh, drugs or treatments allow us now to get enough tissue concentration that ablation is a realistic endpoint as opposed to simply treating after you've done endoscopy, which is in an adjuvant setting.
So we basically have something that is a liquid. Um, and then when it's exposed to body temperature, will turn into a gel. Correct. Correct. And, and, and then over time, um, as uh, this, um, uh, over time, the, the gel itself dissolves back into solution. So um, it, what it does is it increases your dwell time in the upper tract from five to 10 minutes to three to four hours. And that in and of itself gives you the ablative characteristic. So the drug is now able to um, kill the tumor because the concentrations at that tissue level are higher. So you mentioned that you participated in, in the clinical trials. Tell us a little bit about how well it works and, and what some of those results were. Yeah, so this, you know, I would say that, um, so this was the Olympus trial and th this was um, data that was published in Lancet Oncology earlier this year. And, and I would say uh, the, the really what I'm, you know, particularly proud of is it's actually the first prospective study that we've been able to do in upper tract with regards to uh, chemoablation and this concept of chemoablation. And so um, some of the key take-homes were, first of all, um, we wanted, uh, as with most trials, when you're investigating new technology, um, investigated a very uniform cohort. So these were patients who had low-grade upper tract carcinomas. These had to be biopsy confirmed. They couldn't have a positive cytology. The tumors had to be a centimeter and a half or smaller. They had to be located in the kidney uh, above the UPJ, so kidney or renal pelvis or calyces. Um, and so we, this created, I think, a nice narrow window uh, of really who perhaps would be optimal for kidney preservation. So it was, it was really highlighting this concept of kidney preservation group. And so the treatment that was used in this chemoablation trial was patients came in for retrograde installation of drug into the upper tract. So that's once a week for six weeks, whereby a, a ureteral catheter would be placed up to the UPJ and the drug would be instilled. And then um, they would come in for repeat therapies as long as they were tolerating drug effectively. And then uh, this is important to note that these patients all had untreated tumor, okay? So this, this was given with the goal of trying to eradicate tumor. So after their six weeks of therapy, we would do a primary disease evaluation, basically doing a ureteroscopy, looking up in the upper tract, collecting a cytology, and looking to see, did they respond? And was it durable? And so this, the Olympus trial was 71 patients, and sort of the notable findings were older patients, 71 years of age. Um, a number of them had multiple tumors and about half of them had tumors that were hard to get to. So they were ideal candidates for this chemoablation. Maybe the tumor was in a lower pole calyx, the ureteroscope couldn't articulate there. And of those patients that were treated, the complete response rate was 59%. So you know, almost 60% had complete resolution of their tumors. And of those that had complete resolution, six months after treatment, 90% of them were still disease-free. So at least for six months, those resp that responded, nine out of 10 remained disease-free. And that was also true for those who had tumors that we couldn't reach. So promising data, at least in the early time period that it's effective in about 60%, and it was durable out to six months in about 90%. And now there's longer term data that's looking at 
you know, how durable is that response, not just at six months, but a year, uh, two years, three years and beyond. What's the, you, you know, what, what, are, what are the side effects? Obviously, you know, no treatment is without potential side effects. And, and I think the biggest side effect from, or the adverse effect that we noted in this trial was uh, ureteral stenosis. Um, and, and whether that be ureteral edema or in some cases more significant ureteral strictures, um, which uh, occurred in up to about 25 to 30% of patients. And, you know, what could this be a function of? Probably um, the rigorousness of the trial, you know, repeat therapies once a week for six weeks, and the drug essentially coursing down the ureter, potentially causing some of that reaction. Um, it, it could also be that the, the, the trial itself used a larger catheter than most of us use, which was a seven French instead of a five French. So there's several different explanations, but I, I would certainly tell you very effective, but um, you know, patients need to know that, that there is this risk of you know, ureteral stenosis, which was probably the, the, the biggest concern uh, at the conclusion of the trial. So I can think of a couple questions right off the bat. First of all, from a technical standpoint, is this something that can be done without anesthesia? And is it something that requires um, fluoroscopy to confirm placement of the gel? Yeah, so uh, good question. So I, I would say the following. Um, what's really nice about the ability to deliver this is uh, it's retrograde installation. So every urologist uh, is facile with doing retrograde pilography. And so in that regard, the equipment, the, uh, the, and the ability to deliver the drug into the upper tract is something that's very facile in our armamentarium. Um, I would say the second component is um, can it be done under local? Yes. Um, I would say um, my experience has typically been uh, some light conscious sedation is of benefit because some of these patients do feel, you have to instill enough drug into the upper tract that you're coating the upper tract. And so do some of them experience discomfort just from the hydrodistension of the upper tract? They do. So uh, I think both can be uh, done. I think a lot of sites in the trial actually did it under local. We did ours under some conscious sedation. And then I think the third question you asked is, do you need fluoroscopy? And the answer is yes. I mean, I think the critical thing here is um, we want to be able to essentially position these catheters when we're delivering the drug, either at the UPJ or in some cases, if it's a lower pole tumor, certainly you can use like a J-hooking catheter that delivers drug preferentially there. And fluoroscopy does indeed help certainly visualize where is this catheter um, and where are you delivering drug? And you can imagine if you deliver it short of the UPJ, basically in the proximal ureter, you probably aren't getting the tissue benefit uh, of that drug being concentrated in that region. So do you mix it with contrast? So interestingly, you don't. So the way that we typically did it was, so the, the key thing here is you want to be able to fill up the kidney and the renal pelvis and the calyces with drug. And so if you mix it with contrast, some of that space is then being taken up with um, the, the retrograde pyelography uh, contrast medium. So what we would typically do is we would position the catheter at the UPJ, shoot a pilogram to know where our orientation was, position the catheter right in the location we wanted, determine the volume from pilography of what would fill up 
the renal pelvis and the calyces, and then aspirate all of that, let it drain out, and then put that equivalent of this UGN-101 drug mixture into the upper tract. I, um, now, is, is this something that's available now? Do you have access to this now? Yeah, so, so it was FDA approved. So, the, the, you know, a lot of the, the, the trial was really beneficial um, in, in demonstrating uh, proof of concept and efficacy. It's FDA approved. And it is actually out being used in practice. Um, and um, I, I think um, some of the, you know, I'll be the first to tell you some of the nuances of how does reimbursement work with it. I know I'm, I'm admittedly much less familiar with, but, but it is being used in practice. Um, and, um, and I think it has a, a, it has a role. I mean, I think without a doubt, this concept, especially considering the patient population we're dealing with, there is certainly a role in treating a, a proportion of patients with upper tract disease in whom um, kidney preservation has a better option than either endoscopy or, or obviously nephrodurectomy. Is the FDA approval limited to those types of patients that you had in the clinical trial, for example, low-grade size, uh, size limitations, et cetera? Yeah, uh, low grade, yes. I believe the size is, is um, it's, I believe it's one and a half. That, that, to be perfectly honest, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, and, and probably the only other difference in the FDA approval is that it's, it's approved for both administration uh, retrograde via ureteral catheter or uh, percutaneously. So, um, you know, these patients in whom uh, for whatever reason, maybe retrograde installation is more problematic. Maybe if they are a patient with a history of bladder cancer, for example, theoretically, who have a low-grade uh, recurrence and have a diversion, it's hard to access their upper tract. This could be administered uh, via precutaneous approach, although in the trial, we didn't. So um, I, I would say that a lot of what you asked is, um, yes, similar approval to what was studied in the trial, uh, although the size criteria, I don't know uh, right off the top of my head. It would seem reasonable that future applications of this could also be for um, patients who had endoscopic debulking, but you just can't get all the tumor out. There's residual tumor left over. So, so I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think all of us that manage this disease process have these patients who have these tumors, particularly in the lower pole, and the articulation of a ureteroscope maybe can get you to see three quarters of the tumor or half the tumor, and you just can't get down to the base. And you, you don't really have a great alternative for managing that. And so you're absolutely right. I think um, these patients who either have tumors that can't be maximally debulked, for example, ureteroscopically or percutaneous. And then certainly, I think these patients who have multifocal disease, th that's a unique patient population because I think we all recognize when you look and see multifocal disease, they probably have more disease than what you're seeing. And so the concept that this drug could theoretically treat these multifocal sites, but also likely give you some therapy at a tissue level for even the disease you don't see is pretty attractive. So I guess my last question, and it's not really on upper tract urothelial carcinoma, but on um, urothelial carcinoma in the bladder. And that is, uh, 
it would seem that this has the potential to work better than certainly mitomycin in the bladder and maybe other chemotherapeutic or uh, immunotherapeutic agents in the bladder. Is this something that's being looked into? So um, it's almost like you've asked the, uh, the sneak peek, the trailer version of, of what's to come. So um, we just talked a lot about the upper track trial, which was called UGN 101. Um, last year, uh, we finished UGN 102. UGN 102 is the bladder version of this trial. And what it looked at was using a slightly, the same concept, but the dosing is a little bit different, but basically chemoablation of patients with low-grade bladder cancer. And um, the, uh, the interim data was actually presented um, at the AUA last year. And I think the, the one-year data was scheduled to be presented at the AUA this year and probably will be when we have our September meeting. So uh, you're, you're kind of spot on in your thought process in that um, if you think about the concept and, and all the things I said to you about you know, gravity, dwell time, tissue concentration, and bladder reservoir, and you think about how common bladder cancer is compared to upper tract, it's not hard to imagine that the next trial down the pathway was going to be this UGN-102, which was completed. Well, that's great, Jay. Uh, any uh, closing thoughts uh, as we finish up? Um, you know, I, I think the closing thought would be that, um, you know, we all know that, that the U.S. population, the population around the world is, is living longer. Our medical treatments are better. And so we're now faced with more and more situations of elderly patients who are developing cancer. And, and I think, you know, today's podcast, I think, illustrates the way we're increasingly thinking about disease management in these patients, which is um, looking for a more nuanced way of treating their disease, understanding that their reserve is probably not as high. And I think that we're seeing this, whether it be upper tract, kidney, bladder, prostate across the board. Um, and, and I think it sort of just highlights the evolution towards you know, us evolving as, as medical clinicians on treating disease. Dr. Jay Rahman, Professor and Chief of Urology at Penn State Health in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and Chair-Elect of the AUA Office of Education. Thank you uh, so much for your time and all that uh, information that you gave us today on chemoablation of upper tract urothelial carcinoma. I would also like to thank our audience. And as always, uh, for more information, you can visit us at our website at auanet.org university. Thank you.